1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. My name is Thara Menon, and I'm the host for this final episode of Season 3. We've had an all-star cast this season, including conversations between Chang-Rae Lee and Anne Enling Chang, Damon Galgut and Andrew VanderFlees, Ruth Azeki, and Rebecca Evans. We hope that you listen to them all. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Colm Tobin, who will be in conversation with Joseph Rezich. Column Tobin is the author of 10 novels, including The Master, Brooklyn, and my personal favorite, The Testament of Mary. His fiction has won too many awards and prizes to list, but the post colonial girl in me can't resist mentioning that three of his novels have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. To borrow the words of DT Max from his recent New Yorker profile of Column, Tobin's novels typically depict an unfinished battle between those who know what they feel and those who don't, between those who have found a taut peace within themselves and those who remain unsettled. His most recent novel, The Magician, which imagines the life of Thomas Mann, is no exception. Colm is also the author of two collections of short stories, several books of criticism, and he is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. He is the Irene and Sydney B. Silverman Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University and the Chancellor of the University of Liverpool. A few weeks ago, Colin was named the new laureate for Irish fiction. Joseph Rezek is Associate Professor of English and the Director of the American and New England Studies Program at Boston University. He is the author of London and the Making of Provincial Literature. Aesthetics and the Transatlantic Book Trade, 1800 to 1850. Joe has published widely in the fields of book history, early American literature, early Black Atlantic literature and British Romanticism. This semester, Joe is teaching The History of the Novel in English, a survey course he inaugurated when he began teaching at Boston University over a decade ago. I can think of no better person to be in conversation with Colin than Joe. Now the fun begins. I turn things over to you, Joe, and I get to sit back and listen.
1: Uh, Great. Thank you, uh, Tara, for that uh, introduction and for bringing uh, Colm and I together for this conversation. I'm totally thrilled and excited to ask him questions about the craft of novel making. Now, it's probably obvious that Colm is the best person on the planet to discuss the question of how novelists make novels because he's published novels about novelists, most recently, of course, The Magician, which I loved um, for so many reasons, mainly because it gets us into the mind and life of Thomas Mann. So I'm going to ask Colin to read a little bit from The Magician, but I first need to ask him a question about that book. The word magician, um, as referred to Thomas Mann, for those of you who don't know, came from a nickname that his children gave him after a kind of a costume event. But of course, the magician is a term for the novelist, um, someone who creates a world out of thin air, um, and I want to ask Colum first about this idea of choosing that term to describe Thomas Mann. Um, it's pretty explicit in the novel. Uh, there's a there's a moment when Thomas, after the publication of his first blockbuster novel, he says there was some source for it for Buddenbrooks that was outside of himself. Beyond his control. This is column about thinking about what Thomas Mann had thought. It was like something in magic, something that would not come again so easily. So obviously, when we read novels, it's a world-creating event for readers. You describe Thomas Mann as having coming from outside of him. And I just wondered if you could reflect on the novelist as a creator of magic, as a magician.
2: Um, i think there are two things the first is ironic the first is that um in the novel i wrote about henry james it's called a master and he was called a master by many people but it didn't seem like that when he was alone he didn't ever feel in control so that the title is ironic in that you see the public life where it seems like the master has come into the room and the private figure that it does not seem to him or to his close associates that he is in fact in control in that way so too with the magician where as you say, his children as a as a joke name Colin him the magician. He invokes the word magic in even in titles, The Magic Mountain, or Mario and the Magician. And he has magic occurring in even in, say, um, Dr. Faust's sort of pact with the devil, or even in scenes in the magic mountain. And um, but but that he himself, in we we learned from his diaries, was much more uneasy in the world. That 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 he really doesn't. He, he also he, he wasn't a, a, someone who who set the world on fire. He was he was often deliberate, you know, um, very careful in the way he proceeded in the world. So there was there was an element of the, it was the absolute opposite to magician But the question you asked is not that. The question you asked is can be answered in this way: that you can plan a novel, and you can even know each day what it is you're seeking to achieve which you cannot plan the images that will come into your head unbidden as you work. So that as you're in a sentence, the next one comes with an image which you had never thought of before. And it seems to have come automatically as a result of just the rhythms of the prose bringing it into being. And you follow it and see where it will take you. It's not as though it's loose or, or that it is in control. that's always nonsense, saying, you know, a novel wrote itself or, uh, you know, I didn't feel in control. That's always nonsense. That's writers talking nonsense. And you're always in control. You can always just look and say that isn't working and it's going to be deleted. Um, But what happens that's true is something occurs to you from the blue. And that blue is a strange place because you think "A, a, a second ago, I didn't know this. And now it's here. And it's not just coming as an idea. It's coming, not, and not merely as an image, but as a rhythm, as it's coming in words. And it isn't that the words are leading me, but, but it seems as though they are. I mean, it, it's an effortlessness that can come. And the effortless effortlessness can only come if you've been working. And often it comes if you've been working for days and you're living in language. So that language comes to you in the same way as breath comes to you. All, almost uh, the same way as breath comes to you, I mean, almost naturally. And so, yes, uh, something like magic can happen in a given moment where you can look back and think, that that came from nowhere. And uh, and, and it, it seemed so easy when it came, but if I had thought about it, it wouldn't have happened. And so that's the magic.
1: You know, you mentioned The Master, which I reread in the last couple of weeks, and it was a great experience for me to compare The portrait of Henry James to the portrait of Thomas Mann and I had assumed in reading The Master the first time that we were getting a lot of how Colm Tobin writes in The Portrait of Henry James. In reading the Thomas Mann book it is a to me it's a very different portrait of a very different novelist Um, and part of that had to do with James seeming to I mean, he's obviously a different person, but his creative process as depicted in The Master is very um, controlled and reserved. Whereas in The in *The Magician, Thomas Mann is a little bit, he seems to have less control over the things that inspire him. So I, I just wanted to ask before you read from The Magician, is going from James, this, these two novels about novelists, going from James to Mann, did you see that they were more alike um, then different? And then how do you as a novelist fit in sort of, sort of between them?
2: Um, I think there's a great difference between anyone gay um, or closeted gay or whatever word you want to use about the 19th century, born in um, 1843 as James was and born in 1875 as man was. And I think those 30 years made a very big difference about self-consciousness and what you felt you could say or not say. Um, James tended to be very, very careful, um, he didn't keep diaries, he kept notebooks, which was about work, but he didn't keep diaries, he burnt most of the letters he received, and he expected other people to burn them, which of course they didn't, but, the, but I think the big question is that Man, his first novel published when he was 26, is Buddenbrooks, and it really is personal, he, where he, he describes a possible person that's very close to him and describes his own death, which describes his father, his mother, his grandparents, re- rebuilds. It, it, it would be as though Henry James had gone. I mean, in, to some extent, he does it at, in Washington Square, which is his grandmother's house, and the opening of Portrait of a Lady in Albany, which is his other grandmother's house. But he doesn't follow through with describing, for example, the James family, which would have been an extraordinary novel to have himself in William and Alice with their father and mother. But that's what man did. So it meant that man's trajectory from then on Could be as personal as he wanted it to be and he could also let things spring on him such as Death in Venice which you know imagine wasn't planned wasn't part of a strategy um and um and of course he didn't have the same James was all up to the up to about 1900 since you know you're interested in the book trade you know that he was really writing for serialization. Portrait of a Lady is written for serialization. And you can see it in the form of the book, but you can also see it in the content of the book. Man didn't have that, have that problem. His wife was tremendously rich and Buddenbrooks had made so much money that he, that he never had to write with any interest in the market. The market came to him. He didn't go to the market. It's the opposite with James. So, so I think there are many differences between them, but also James had no rich domestic life. He had servants. Man developed this massive brood who made a huge amount of noise yeah. Um, James didn't have noise, so there's a huge difference between them in that sense. Also, the big, the big thing is the two world wars. <laughs> I mean, nobody. I mean, man was everyone in his world was affected so deeply by those two wars that you know James, oddly enough, you know, comes into adulthood after the American Civil War, which he doesn't fight in, of course and is, is, is dying already when the First World War begins. It doesn't stop him getting fired up as a huge patriot in England in a crazy way at about 19, 1914. But, 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 he, but he lives his life in peacetime, which is an unusual period. And James, so you don't have to worry about what was James doing during the Boer War. I mean, he was writing a novel. You know, he, he wasn't affected by these wars. So, so I think that's a big difference between the two. Would you would you read something from The Magician? And um, one of the difference between James and and Mann is that Henry James, I don't know if he was tone deaf, but he had no interest in music. Um, he was very interested in painting, and um, but Mann was really fired up with music. He was brought up with music, and being being a German of that generation, he you know that that tradition of the of the nineteenth century symphonic tradition. The problem with the 19th century symphonic tradition, now that he's in California and it's 1942, is that it, that emotion being stirred up by this big orchestras is an emotion that's really got elements of poison in it. But the chamber music doesn't. His son, Michael, is a viola player. There's actually a recording, you can get a CD of his son playing. You know, it's, it's, he, he was a well-known player at the time. He had a string quartet and they're in California. And Thomas Mann, who has built his new house at Pacific Palisades, asks him, Will, your, will you and your quartet come to play Opus 132, which is one of the beautiful Beethoven late quartets, which has this beautiful, long, slow movement, which is a sort of like a prayer of thanksgiving. And um, he asks his son to do this and his son agrees and the, and the quartet comes. Now, you have to remember, that man, of course, once four young men come into the room. His eyes are, I mean, he's, if, you know, this business of gazing is something that man and James have in common. You know, people now really object to the male gaze. Well, if you want the male gaze here, here, here is the male gaze. But of course, it's also the question of, um, he, what, what I'm writing here is a sort of code for Jewishness. I mean, when, when he's looking at them, what he's really looking at is some shadow of a, of a Jewish world that he knows has gone in Europe, and it's the world his wife his wife was Jewish and um, has been part of. I don't use the word Jewish here, but I, I think you'll see. Thomas's wife is called Katia. His son is called Michael. When the music began, Thomas was struck by its daring, the quiet release of a sort of anguish, followed by a tone that suggested struggle, with hints that the struggle brought pain, but pain and joy. He must, he knew, stop thinking. give up trying to find simple meaning in the music, but let it instead enter his spirit, listen to it as though he might never get another chance. It was hard not to look at the players, however. Thomas watched them, um, however, not, it was hard not to look at the players, however, not to study their seriousness of concentration. Thomas watched them taking their cues from the lead violinist. The lead violinist and Michael on the viola seemed to spar taking energy from each other, the music edged towards resolution and held back for a moment before it soared. He glanced over at Catty, who smiled at him. This was the world of her parents, who had hosted many such chamber concerts in their house in Munich. Out of this old world from which they had been forced to flee, Michael, their son, had emerged as the one of musical talent. Thomas watched him playing with slow care, showing no emotion as handsome and self-possessed. He let the viola's dark sound hit against the sweeter sound of the two violins. As the music continued, the lead violinist and the cellist shed some of their Americanness. The rangy, friendly, masculine openness apparent earlier was replaced, he saw, by vulnerability, sensitivity, until they could have been Germans or Hungarians from decades before. Maybe he thought it was merely something he imagined, Something caused by the force of the four instruments playing together, as they found moments of pure connection with one another, and then went silent or played solo. Where Thomas could entertain the idea that ghosts from an earlier time—ghosts who had once walked the streets of Europe of the European cities—carrying instruments, ghosts on their way to rehearsal, were present here in this new house overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Southern
1: California. Wow! Beautiful. Um, I. I think mu- music is a great contrast contrasting artistic form to fiction in your novel the magician and, and and reading this scene reminds me of um i don't know if it's it's probably right after that or something in your novel where where thomas mann says um, composers can think about god and in the ineffable and the, and the ineffable we have to imagine the buttons on a coat as novelists the grubby business of writing novels is what Mann calls novel writing after he's thinking about music. So, you know, I have, I'm teaching the history of the novel right now. I have 13 wonderful students. Um, I asked them if they had any questions for you because um, I told them I was talking to a great contemporary novelist, and one of them had a great question related to this. Um, which is we think of the novel as a great, a capacious literary form, uh, a giant form that you can put lots of things into. It's an elastic form, it's an experimental form, but they wanted to know if you thought the novel had limitations as a medium. Um, And the scene about music with mom listening to the music and the way that music brings ghosts um, into the the presence of a room, right? Um, And I'm thinking also of sort of Proust's interest in music in in search of lost time, with the little, um, uh, with the mu- music in that book. Anyway, is for you is music a great contrasting medium to to fiction writing, or do you see them do you see them competing at all, or do you see them as complementary? I guess. Um,
2: you know, you're right that the the novel is a capacious form, and and it's and it's hybrid. You know, in other words, it, it comes from so many different sources, the oral source, the folktale source, the sermon, the pamphlet, the satirical pamphlet. Um, and uh, it, um, you know, it makes its way through the 19th century with everybody trying out one more thing with it to see where it will go, the epistolary the novel. Um, the, but the big issue for me is um, the novel as a secular space, that the novel loves things. It loves money, it loves disappointment, it loves um people getting chances and choices, and it loves coincidence. And um so that it's 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 always pushing you towards um would a new car help the scene if they bought a new car? You know, the the constant business of material possessions of um and the next generation things being passed on to them. You can't put a miracle into a novel. It's very, very difficult to say that he prayed that, you know, his bank account would be full in the morning. And it was, you know, I mean, in a way, the novel was set up to stop that sort of nonsense from, from, from coming from the religious side of things. You know, that the novel is standing firm in a time of, you know, early capitalism when people were suddenly, a, a, you know, aware more that they could become rich. You know, by you know, by chance, by choice, by you know, <laughs> and we're not having it. You know, if the next thing happens. It happens as a result of the last thing. It may be surprising, but it cannot be fully miraculous. What then of the soul? Oh, can we trace the word "soul" in the novel from its beginnings to now and see when when it's used? Sometimes. Uh, novelists use it far too much when they mean something else. But um, H- Henry James uses it in very interesting ways where he talks about, um, for example, when Isabel Archer in Portrait of a Lady is watching Madame Merle, who's talking all about that a person comes with their shell, meaning their possessions, their house, their clothes, their art, and you cannot divide the person from the shell. And Isabel is saying, but what about the soul? She doesn't ask it because, but what about the soul? Like. It, it, does she have to imagine that aspect of Madame Merle? It becomes the crucial question in the novel, in fact, that Isabel is seeking something. Her yearning is not a material yearning, it's for something oddly spiritual. And um, Madame Merle's is entirely hard and material. And that, in fact, is the drama. In The Golden Bowl, there's a moment where Maggie Verver is watching her mother in law, Charlotte stand, giving a tour of the art collection to the locals in some English place. And she suddenly, as she hears her speak, it seems like the shriek of a soul in pain. And you realize that that James has been moving all along towards attempting to enter some spiritual space where redemption is is actually a serious question. And so um, uh, that's the problem we face. Um, I've come to see it as this that if you only have your characters interested, in material things, you actually lose a layer of the novel that's always been possible. The subtle business that probably has its roots in religious writing, you know, particularly 17th century religious religious writing, and that that, you know, coming in the form of sermons and storytelling, storytelling in sermons, and that that makes its way down slowly, almost like water dripping into a sense that any story told in a novel has to contain some element that isn't merely material. And you're working with that very carefully because if you overdo it, you lose it. If you if you show it, if, if you give any sign that you're doing it, the reader sees it immediately, smells it, and it's rotten because you're looking for too much for the form. But So you have to disguise it, conceal it, but it has to be there.
1: You know, I we just read uh, Robinson Crusoe in, in my History of the Novel class, and and we talked about this moment that I set up in the class as a kind of like a a, a decision that Defoe makes about a crisis Robinson Crusoe has. Now, that novel is, we, we know it. he's on the island, he's like, you know, tending to his goats, and he's, you know, he's, he's, it's very material. There are things all over that novel, but you're right, there's, there's this, um, reaching for the non-material in that foundational text too. And it really happens when he's been alone for 20 years and he sees a solitary footprint in the sand. And the, and the Defoe gives us like 10 pages of crisis. Yeah. Um, of it's a t- purely internal crisis. He thinks it's the devil. It is spiritual. But yeah. this sort of sets up for the genre, in my you know, narrative I tell, uh, a, a scene of personal crisis that happens to our protagonists um that 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 takes the novel out of the material and puts it into the psychological into the kind of you know but it's part of a kind of a journey for the protagonists and i yeah. i it, when isabel archer you know stays up until the candles go out after she sees madame merle and gilbert osmond being too familiar in in the drawing room right um or when elizabeth bennett reads darcy's letter um that explains himself and she has to have this whole chapter about her personal crisis and and so one question for you, and this happens in your novels, um, I've noticed around uh, death and, and someone someone dying. This happens with James, with Constance then uh, Wilson dying. It happens in the Mon book with his son dying. Um, it happens in Brooklyn. So I, that's a, that's a question about your work and about death as kind of like this moment, I guess, building off of what you just said about the novel searching for something beyond the material and death being a, a moment when, um, when that comes up for protagonists, moments of crisis. Um, I, I wonder if you could respond, I could say more about how I think it's working in some of your fiction, but I wonder if you could say more about, you know, moments of crisis for protagonists and how, how that might be a way that novels get out of mm.
2: the material. And I love your Robinson Crusoe example, and I love the way you moved it into the word, using the word psychological, because psychological is probably the best word to use to describe the umbrella you must put up in order to get that, you know, to, to get that sense of the spiritual, that if you move it into religious terms, you lose it. But, right. but, but actually just merely making it psychological, merely letting someone muse over the possibilities of things, but in their own mind, that somehow brings with it a notion of soul. As, as, in the, as in the examples that you've given. Uh, I'm going to be 67 this year, and I'm writing a novel, and it's the first novel I have written which has no one dying wow. during, the, during the book. And I, this occurred to me one day, I walked down the street, oh, my God, I've got no one dying in this book. What does this say? And Because in Australia a few years ago, a woman came up to me, and she was getting a book signed, and she was very nice, until she suddenly looked at me and said, now, how many people die in this one? <laughs> I was taking it back, and I had to say to her, darling, I'm really sorry, but actually quite a number. I mean, I hope that's okay with you. I said, no, that's fine. I just want to know. Uh, that." Um, that um, there are several reasons for this, and the first one is personal, because I think you've always got to realise how much personal need, things that are unresolved in you, make their way into novels. In a way, that's what I'm trying to work out in James and Man. But I'm working it out for very good reasons, in in that um, I think I know it, you know, that, 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 you, that you can't say there is a composing self that makes novels and there is the suffering, shivering being that, you know, shuttles into the study to do that. They connect and they connect sometimes in the strangest ways because you're often involved in magical thinking you're imagining yourself as an only child for example which i've always wanted to be as you imagine yourself as an only child you imagine yourself i mean james imagines himself you know in in various guises as you know throughout his life similarly thomas mann imagines himself um, you know even in dr Faustus as a famous german composer and um so my father died when I was 12, and I never really got over that. It was, it was that time when no one knew that children went through things in the same way, or perhaps even more than adults. And so you were simply left to your own devices. So oh, kids get over things. Kids are fine. they're, they're fine. Are they really? No, they're fine. And um, that really haunted me. And so there, there was no chance I was ever going to write a novel without that getting into it. And um, I mean, so much so that my father's names are in that first novel, you know, and that, it just goes on. And, um, you know, I, I was in the generation of gay men who, um, you know, when the, when the when the AIDS crisis broke, you know, it was just when I was coming into my home, you know, when I was, I was, um, um, I suppose I was like 30, 35. And, you know, suddenly this became the most frightening thing. Yeah. After all the struggle, after all the struggles against silence, against legislation, against all forms of bigotry, suddenly we, there was an element of in the cities of freedom, and that very freedom, then created a crisis in which, in which men died in the most terrible ways, and everyone was every, everyone was so afraid, and so that made its way into two novels, into the Blackwater Lightship, into 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 the story of the night, and um, what happened after that for me was that my um, my mother died, uh, and then my two brothers died. And so that I, 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 and we had, been, because of the town was small and there was an extended family, and there was um, there were two aunts that had no children who were living very close to us. And I was in the room with both of them when they died. And so that, that whole business of the disappearance of, there was a Christmas dinner we used to have in which there would be 20 people. And it, was, it, was, it just went down each year. And then there were five years where it wouldn't go down. So you get used to it again, being 14 or 15. And then it would suddenly start again to go down and down and down. I mean, and then you realize it's got to be zero some year. And uh, so all of that pain and all of that, I think living in that world where Christianity really, didn't really mean anything to me, but I was brought up in it. So there was a sort of clash between a notion of being a community believing in afterlife and redemption and and uh, all that and not believing in it. So all of that made its way into the novels in ways which are unresolved. So I think that's the only explanation I can give you. If, if I try and give you a highfalutin one about the novel form itself lending itself to death, well the, yeah, yeah, that maybe but um but I'm afraid this is this is the only the, the explanation I can give you that really means most is that this is personal. And for some reason now um, I had cancer, um, I, I came out the other side of it, and um, I keep telling everyone I learned nothing from it. I'm just, just <laughs> boring, and it was painful, it was all that. But when I came out the other side of it, obviously, I <laughs> could suddenly write a novel. But it's also that I'm, that I'm happier, that I'm, um, I'm in love. And um, But I, it's not just that, whatever it is anyway, I'm writing my novel, and it's free of that for a change. I think there'll be a lot of general relief.
1: Uh, I don't quite know how to follow up all that. That's, do, do you ever worry about putting people that you know in novels?
2: Um, you know, I wrote Nora Webster about my mother. Um, and most of the time, the novel is dedicated to my mother and my brother. And the three of us were in the house. And so I was the only one left. The other two had died. So, you know, that, that was strange. But um, I suppose in... You know, in, yes, in in something like the Blackwater Lightship, some of the family configurations are clearly mine. And they did, y- y- yes, they did, they did recognise it. And it was funny, there was a very, very difficult weekend. And there was a thing that had never happened before, where, you know, my mother actually stood up from the table and said, could someone drive her home? She wanted to get out of here. And, um, ooh. You know, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but that problem was solved very quickly because I was I and um, the novel was published at the same time as the booker shortlist was to come out and by some coincidence I was on the list and that lifted everyone's spirits because my mother when she would go downtown would um meet everybody who would congratulate her as though she had written something well her son had I suppose and she sent me and I used this I think in Brooklyn. She just sent me a big long list, like a ledger, like, like a, like a, very, you know, of all the people she'd met who had congratulated her on me being on the Booker shortlist for the Blackwater Lightship. A big long list of people in the town, with no comment, just just the top saying, you know, she, I mean, she was highly ironic. My mother says, "These are the people who have congratulated me on your being on the Booker shortlist." And I just, I don't know how she got the bit of paper, but it went right down like a scroll, and she sent it to me. And uh, that got over the whole problem. It was never mentioned again. The whole the whole issue of him putting 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 people into your books.
1: Great. Right. I want to I want to um, uh, change the subject a little bit. And you know, the last time that I saw you, column was when I went. I ran down to New York to see the Testament of Mary um, with Fiona Shaw on Broadway, and it, which was extraordinary. And I do like Tara. I love that novel. I think it's uh, amazing and kind of like thrilling. Um, my question though is, do you think when you write novels, and this is a question that my students had, when you write novels, do you see them in other media? So, you know, Brooklyn was a great giant movie, um, Oscar nominated movie. Um, and obviously The Testament of Men and Mary was on Broadway. Do you think of novels writing for other media when you're writing a novel? Or is that something that comes after the novels?
2: And. The Testament to Mary was unusual. Uh, I mean, it, it began as a play. It began as a monologue for an actress. And um, it was commissioned by the Dublin Theatre Festival. Just, I, I just bumped into the director and we just had a conversation and out of the conversation came that. When the play was over and it ran a short time because it was in a festival and they were taking down the set and it was a Sunday evening. And I walked up through Dublin. With the, I, mean, I saw men coming up the stairs and said, what are these guys? They're, they're going coming to destroy the set and to take it away. So it's all going to be it's like breathing on glass, this business. Just wipe, wipe the glass. So we're going up through Dublin, walking home, and I thought, actually, I have a huge amount of material that I didn't use in this. And I actually can see how it would begin, and I could, I'm could, i going to start tomorrow morning on this. I, I'm actually, I also, the collaboration thing was fine. We're, we're all still talking to each other at the end of it. But it, it was always different. You're always making compromises. You were always trying to work out, what does this person want, and can I give it to her, you know? like the director or the designer or the actress. So going back into the solitary business where you have such control, such power, was really great for me and I and, and I wrote the book. And then that book in turn became the one that Fiona Shaw did. So, 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 so it moved in that straight that, That's not obviously happened to any of the other books. And the Brooklyn thing, you know, some films work and some films don't and you can never be sure why. And we were just so lucky that that Saoirse Ronan had not done an Irish part before. And if, if we had had the money two years earlier, which we didn't have, she would have been too young. So just at that very moment, we got this great actress. If we hadn't got this great actress, the film might have been very different. So things happen by chance. But no, as you're working on a novel, if you start thinking about movie rights or movies, like you really, really should go to law school and just get on with some, <laughs> you know, some, playing some useful part in the community because like you should, you know, the, the idea that, oh, someone, this is going to make you money, or this is going to be, you'll be famous. Just get on with the next, because if you don't, if you start thinking like that, you will miss the magic image that I was talking about at the very beginning. It won't come because you're already, you know, bloated with greed.
1: When I was rereading The Master, it opens with Wilde and his play. And then in Thomas Mann, um, in, in The Magician, you have, W.H. Auden and Isherwood. And in both of these novels, you have a relatively closeted, repressed gay writer, and then these foils where you have like openly gay writers um, in the novels too. And I'm just, I know you're interested in kind of in characters who can't say much or repression. Would you, would you ever write a novel about an openly gay novelist? I mean, you have obviously openly gay characters in a lot of your fiction, but is there, is the novel, is the novel genre for you, I mean, writing about novelists? Can there be, is it interesting enough to you if you just write about a flagrantly gay novelist? Would you write a novel about Wilde or, you know, someone from the 20th century who's openly gay?
2: No, I have no interest um, in anyone whose sexuality. I mean, in, in, any, in exploring the life of any writer whose sexuality is clear. Um, in other words, I couldn't write about Joyce. Because it, it's not, I, there's no mystery involved, there's no darkness, and and um, and in the, in the same way with Wild, he's I, he's absolutely clear to me, but I am I do have a good lot of a novel, not the one I'm working, on, but the one after that, which will be about the life of a gay man in Ireland, in my lifespan, which of course will mean a lot of period when everything's cool, everything's easy, and um, you know, so um, yeah, I am going to have a go at that, but um. What's, what's interesting with this is that I think every gay man in the closet is more frightened by a gay man out of the closet than they are by, you know, bullies or, you know, you know jocks or straight guys. There's, there's a very frightening thing if you're 14 or 15, even still perhaps, that you're in the closet and you're watching every move you're making and you're trying to pass. And suddenly this guy comes in who's flaunting it and he comes over and looks at you. And, and I look, this is everyone who's gay knows this. And it's out of your nightmare. And he suddenly sees it in you. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do. All your passing, all your efforts, your invisibility, all dissolves. And what you want to do is get away from that guy as quickly as possible. So I'm sort of working with that That the reason why man really finds Alden and Isherwood ob- obnoxious is not they're, ob- they're not being obnoxious. Actually, he's so frightened by the two of them. And the, exactly the same thing happens with um, Henry James and Wilde. I, I don't have as much evidence, I mean, the, the, that scene is, is invented with with um, Man and Auden. I mean, he did meet, he, he was with Auden that day, I just don't know what they said. But the stuff with James and Wilde, James really was afraid of Wilde. And he was afraid of that very thing about someone wandering around flaunting.
1: I have one last question for from my students, which I would love to ask you. What What excites you most about creating a novel? So, what is the most exciting part for you is it the characters the mood the sentences the plot like what's going to happen to characters so when you when you when you when you sit down to create a novel what is the kind of what seems exciting to you about that process and then ask in contrast to something that seems a little bit more um mundane
2: and um, i have a book of poetry coming out next month and it's my first um it's, it's coming out in boston it's coming out with beacon press and then um, Writing a poem has genuine excitement because you're, it's like a form of action. You're almost, you're wiping words out, you're trying new things, you're seeing if it comes right. Writing novels is a dull business. It's it's slow, it's plotting, and it's work. It's, you can be as excited as you like, but actually you have to get pages filled. And so it's the day-to-day dullness of it, the constancy of it, the fact that you cannot suddenly start another novel in the middle of this novel, that you have to finish it, that you have to go finish it finish it get up earlier why are you in bed why are you drinking why are you talking why are you on email you know so 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 the excitement is not the word it's, it's 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 noveling is a dull novelists are dull 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 people and um you need a basic dullness in you and then once you're sitting down and doing it um as i said something can come to you a a thing out of the blue that someone can say or do. But what's happening with me at the moment is I have written two sections of this novel with seven sections. So I'm on section three in my mind. And every day I get something new. Every day I work out a solution. This is just wandering around, staying in bed, just doing nothing. I get another solution. Now, that's exciting, where something that seemed intractable. You know, I was thinking there's a, because, there's a, there's a man in the book, a straight man, and I have to give him quite a lot of space at one point, but I can't think of where would that fit in the overall design. Yesterday, just yesterday, I realized that his conscience, the idea of what he knows to be right and wrong, is a very big thing for him. And if you let what you're talking about, the psychological thing happen, the, the staying up through the night thing happen, then you could give him an awful lot of sort of dynamic energy in the book that wouldn't have to be plot-led. You know, it wouldn't have to be that he doesn't drive, he doesn't meet anyone, he doesn't... No, it's just him him alone. So those things are exciting where you get a new perspective and you get in the strangest ways before you write. And then as you write in the detail. But I have to say that the main business of writing is dollars, 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 dollars. Um,
0: Okay, I'm gonna jump in now with the very last question of the episode. Um, novel dialogue always ends with a signature question. And this season, um, the signature question is, Colm, if you could snap your fingers and have an extraordinary new talent, what would that be?
2: Are there a few things? We'd, I'd like to be a good mimic. Um, and um, yeah, I'd like to be able to sing really well. Yeah. Um, I think George Orwell said he'd like to be attractive to women. <laughs> <laughs> so I <don't>, do you, <laughs>
0: um, well thank you very very much both of you
2: okay well thank you thank you. We'll you take care
0: finally i want to remind listeners that colin's latest novel the magician is available in bookstores everywhere we at novel dialogue are grateful to the society for novel studies for its sponsorship and to public books for its partnership. We also wish to thank Duke and Brandeis universities for their support. Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern and designer, Claire Ogden, our sound engineer, and James Draney, our blog editor. Thanks so much for listening.